This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today, I have as my guest, Dr. Xiaomei Chen, the author of many, many books, including uh, the one we're talking about today, Performing the Socialist State, Modern Chinese Theater and Film Culture. Dr. Chen, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Andy, for inviting me. Uh, I really look forward to uh, talk about this and have a dialogue with you. Great. So one of the many projects that you've worked on was the Columbia Anthology of Modern Chinese Drama, which uh, should be on everybody's bookshelf. It's an incredible volume. And I wanted to ask you, what did you learn about the plays that you published in that volume by seeing some of them performed by your students at UC Davis? Thank you, Andy, for the question. Um, as you mentioned, the uh, Columbia Anthology of Modern Chinese uh, Drama in the English translation uh, has been used uh, in, in uh, English-speaking classrooms as a textbook to, to study uh, modern Chinese uh, theater, especially in the subgenre, which is the focus of my research called spoken drama, which is the Western-style drama uh, learned or adapted from Shakespeare, Chekhov, uh, Ibsen, and so on. So my anthology um, really aim at uh, general readers who might be uh, interested in the bookstore under the you know best re- best plays of Shakespeare, fifty best dramas of uh, Latin America. So I want this book to be on a bookshelf. Uh, people who want to learn the basics, the ideas, the history, and the text of modern Chinese theater would grab this from bookstore and read it. So this anthology covers twenty-two plays translated English and uh, covers the period of 1920 to 1990s. So it's really the entire 20th century. Uh, in order for the, for the general readers, as well as students in Chinese drama classes uh, in English speaking countries to really understand the importance of uh, these works, uh, I have a, a introduction uh, to the anthology, which has a cultural history of the uh, century of Chinese drama 
and its beginnings and where it ends, not ends, ends in this anthology in 1990. <laughs> and, and also uh, provide kind of a brief old, uh, biography of the major writers covered in this uh, one. So for instance, my student, I said, okay, read Tian has this play. They have a little paragraph in the introduction that will actually tells you what Tianhan is all about, why this play was included. And, and also I uh, provide a kind of clo a close reading, why this particular play of Tianhan is important, close reading of text to help students and general readers to understand the text better in the culture of the 20th century. So that's how I started uh, the anthology. And I have been using this anthology to teach uh, my Chinese drama class at uh, UC Davis. And uh, and uh, I I want to test how uh, this anthology is really accessible through performing uh, some of the dramatic texts in American classroom by my student. So I gave my students in modern Chinese drama some extra credit and say, hey, if you produce one of these plays, you get extra credit. So it started uh, from the idea of motivating students to perform some of the favorite texts in the anthology, but end up really motivating them to organize a UC Davis Chinese Drama Club, which actually performed uh, Chinese plays from this anthology uh, in three seasons. And oh, the night wow. there's a 1917 season uh, in which my students or the UC Davis Chinese Drama Club performed uh, a play in this anthology by Ouyang Yitian called After Returning Home. Uh, what's interesting about this play is that it was seldom performed in China because who cares about 1920s Chinese students going to America and learn American culture, right? This is old text by dead guy and it seems to be irrelevant. But amazingly, my students love the text, love the play, and they easily relate. 1920s mm. Ouyang Yuqian's experience uh, in crossing the oceans and studying America as a young Chinese man. So both my students and the audience uh, in, in, in a classroom, we didn't have money to rent a theater, so we stayed in a big classroom. They both relate to the relevance of 1920s um, Chinese, um, Chinese students experiencing studying in America and uh, cross-cultural conflict and difficulties and a challenge. So um, I, I guess seeing students' performance of those old plays, uh, dated plays, uh, plays uh, made me realize that there is a way of connecting students and a good way to connect with students is to ask them to adapt a text into performance. In the mm -hmm. middle of performance, not only they would have fun and have a peer um, kind of friendship, but also they understand the text so much better because it's related to their life experience right now. I must imagine too that it was a, a very gratifying experience uh, to to see that these translations were very stage worthy and and really worked as a live performance, not just as a text for for reading and study. You're correct. Yes, uh, that's the uh, additional aspect of that uh, to imagine some of the plays actually can be performance in countries beyond the Chinese territory. Yeah. 
You've written many books about 20th century Chinese drama and film. How does this current book, Performing the Socialist State, build on those earlier books and extend the arguments? Well, this is a, a very good question. So please allow me for a little bit detour <laughs> to my uh, first book, a 1995 uh, first book, Occidentalism, because this one kind of helped me establish a the theoretical framework and a way of having a dialogue with Western drama and Western comparative studies in terms of uh, theories, right? So, so this book started uh, with a kind of discussion of Sa'i's Orientalism, in which he rightfully pointed out that when the Western people uh, try to understand uh, Oriental uh, culture, instead of trying to represent the real Oriental cultures, people of literature, they inevitably representing themselves the way they understand what the Orient to be. So Sa'i's work was instrumental in, in um, making prominent the post-colonial study of theater and culture. And my Occidentalism, my first book, actually have a dialogue with Sa'i by saying, if you look at a Chinese story and Chinese historical and cultural ideological circumstances, when the Western ideas and Western theater were introduced, they are not necessarily all imperialistic Western imposing their ideas and interpretation of Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. uh, I especially studied the early post-Mao China when Mao's uh, ideology, the cultural revolutionary experience was challenged. Uh, the introduction of Shakespeare, introduction of Brecht's plays into the Chinese stage uh, was a production adaptation of Western theater, but the reason they became popular or they became successful performances is because it provides something politically liberating mm -hmm. for Chinese intellectuals and artists who are engaged in theater. Just give a brief example, Brecht's play, Galileo, about this uh, scientist, um, was uh, really uh, relatable to the Chinese intellectuals and scientists who were persecuted during the Cultural Revolution. So Galileo's rejection of resistance to authority for them is a hero that they can uh, um, they can follow to challenge the status quo, the ruling ideology, right? So mm -hmm. that's why Brax Galileo was so uh, famous. So that's my first book to really look at the cross-cultural uh, conflict and contradictions and paradox when you study Chinese theater cross-culturally. Uh, my second book, Acting the Right Part, um, is really um, argue the central um, argument that Chinese theater in the PRC, in the People's Republic of China, which was established in 1949 and is still going on, we call it PRC. Chinese theater in the PRC period are politically driven, therefore not artistically worth studying. My main argument is you cannot really separate politics in everyday life, especially political life in China, from the theatrical impulses and performance in everyday life, in the sense that theater is political and everyday life is as theoretical events as what has been portrayed on theater. In order to advance this argument, I pick up a difficult period that is the cultural revolutionary model theater. During the 
cultural revolution, uh, the radical cultural figures promoted what is known as the eight model theaters of the cultural revolution to show those are exemplary proletarian theater uh, we should uh, pursue against the bourgeois theater that was criticized during the cultural revolution, including all the theater pieces um, written and performed by Tian Han, Hong Shen, and Ouyang Yuqian, and all the earlier dramatists. Um, so I focus on model theater of the PRC to show even this extremely politically driven theater is in fact rooted in the rich artistic traditions of China and the West. For instance, among the eight model plays, five of them were in the dramatic form of Peking Opera, right? Mm -hmm. When you have as a form, it is actually digging into the richest form of Peking opera. And then there is a Western ballet, two Western ballets, which is Western form that was supposed to be criticized during the Cultural Revolution, but they put into the revolution and content. So there's a perfect combination of Western ballet art with uh, the uh, political content that was promoted during the Cultural Revolution. And then there's a Western symphony, uh, which is a Western art form that was adapted uh, with revolution theme and war story. So um, what I try to do uh, in Acting the Right Part, my second book, is to really dig into the rich uh, topics and traditions of Maoist theater or the theater of the PRC period in order to emphasize the importance of studying it. Uh, very quickly, I'm going to my third book uh, that is Staging the Chinese Revolution. Uh, Andy, thank you for having an earlier podcast on this. Yeah, if our listeners want to learn more about that book, they could, they should listen to that uh, earlier uh, interview that we did. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to skip that, but you're asking <laughs> how my current book is built on that. So very quickly, uh, that one uh, was about founding fathers of Chinese Communist Party how they are portrayed from negative to positive in the case of Chen Duxiu, who was the real founder of the Chinese Communist Party in 21, and how Mao Zedong was performed in post-Mao China as someone who's attacking uh, or criticizing corruption, which is aimed towards the rising problem corruption in the reform and Deng Xiaoping period. And I talk about Deng Xiao, the performance of Deng Xiaoping in theater, television, drama, and, uh, and uh, TV series, uh, to show that it's a discrepancy. He was not just, as the official media said, a heroic leader in the 1920s military war. He actually fled from the battlefield in the crucial moment. This is by comparing different performance pieces and see what is not saying implicitly, but people who are into party and war history will uh, uh, interpret it that way. So um, so this Staging the Chinese Revolution, my third book, is about founding fathers of Chinese Communist Party and the performances of their life stories in the difficult, complex history of contemporary China. So my current book, uh, the book we're talking about today, Performing a Chinese State, is a follow-up of my last book. Uh, because the last book is about founding fathers of the Chinese Communist Party. And this one says, where does this tradition come from? It actually from the stories of founding fathers of Chinese theater. That mm -hmm. is Han, Ouyang Yuqian. And so that gave me a way of talking about the three 
key founders of modern Chinese theater and go back to history and illustrate how the Maoist theater and post-Mao theater was not a radical breaks from the early works of Tianhan Hongshen and Ouyang Yitian in the Republic period before 1949. In fact, those three founding fathers of theater created and imagined the socialist theater and paved its way for its dominant appearance in the Maoist period, in the PRC period after 49. So, Ironically, because some of those uh, founding fathers of Chinese theater fared quite poorly in that Maoist period. I'm thinking of Tianhan specifically here. Could you give us a, a little bit of a capsule biography of who he was and and uh, how his work influenced later work? Yes, uh, Tianhan, one, one of the three, or I would say first, founders of modern Chinese theater, is a really rich figure uh, who studied Japan in Japan uh, in his early teens, uh, late teens and early 20s, and fell in love with the Japanese introduction of Western theater. And he says, oh, this, this spoken drama stuff is really great. So he introduced the Japanese uh, experimental theater that introduced the Western theater uh, in the Japanese artist um, rejection of Japanese traditional theater. And he said, this is what the Chinese dramatists could do. We introduce Western theater so we can reform. He didn't try to get rid of traditional Chinese theater. We can combine the Western theater with the traditional Chinese theater. So in this way, he's a little bit different from uh, his uh, Japanese peers. So in that sense, um, he was crucial in Western style theater, such as a spoken drama. He's also crucial in not rejecting traditional Chinese operatic tradition, but actually finding the best of it and try to combine it with Western style theater. So in my book, I kind of uh, talk about the first play he actually wrote was in the form of chi traditional Chinese opera. That means not only he knows the tradition, he practiced that tradition, and implanted into the revolutionary contemporary theme. Uh, he was also a writer of Western style opera. He also participated in the starting of film script, film industry. And most importantly, this is an influence that even today people see Tianhan's name mentioned all the time. He was the uh, lyric writer of the Chinese national anthem uh, that was written uh, as a film theme song during the anti-Japanese war period or the uh, Second World War period, and it became a national anthem in the PRC period, and it's still being seen today, especially when Chinese nationalist uh, uh, spirit were roused against US imperialism in, in, in recent <laughs> trade war, right? So Tianhan is very famous because he's multi-disciplinary multi and his achievement uh, is cross-genre. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Fantastic. So he was he's best remembered probably through that that one song. Would you say that's correct? Yes. National Anthem. Yeah. Well, yes. A very important song. <laughs> um, uh, 
another figure you talk about is Hong Shen. Um, could you talk about his relationship to Tian Han? Were they were they colleagues, or was Hong Shen more somebody who followed in his footsteps? Well, um, Hong Shen is definitely a colleague, uh, not someone as a follower. But they have very different uh, journey into uh, the intellectual world. Um, the most important thing is Tian Han studied in Japan and pick up Western theater and Western theater indirectly through his Japanese experience, through his contact and learning from Japanese artists. Well, Hong Shen uh, went to uh, Ohio State where I was, <laughs> I taught for about 13 years. So it's especially endearing to me. And he was sent to the United States or namely uh, the Ohio State universities to study something uh, that government thought was important in the 1920s, but he fell in love with theater and he spent all his time in Columbus <laughs> uh, libraries uh, reading Shakespeare and so on. So finally he, uh, he, uh, he went to Harvard and enrolled in a very dramatic, uh, very famous class that actually earlier trained uh, very important American playwrights such as Eugene O'Neill. So he had this quintessential Harvard professional education in theater. And to top that, he also had theater experience. He worked in theaters in Boston and New York uh, to be an usher, to take care of the coat <laughs> of the audiences. So he learned all the managerial aspect of theater. Mm. So in that sense, he is, um, he has the, uh, what should I say, the advantage of learning American theater and by extension, Western theater, because the American theater produced a lot of classic Western plays such as Ibsen, Chekhov, and so on, and Shakespeare. Not only he has more classic education from Harvard about a tradition, but he also had hands-on experience in directing, theater management, and, and in that way, uh, he is known in uh, among the three founding fathers or in Chinese theater history as director, whereas Tian Han is a script writer, even mm. though both dovetail uh, in both. But Tian Han is mostly a script writer, an educator uh, of some drama schools. But um, Hong Xin is uh, celebrated as an all-rounded, real theater practitioner. Did and, they ever collaborate together? Yes, that's a very good uh, question. Um, Hong Xin um, returned to China after his uh, internship uh, from Boston and uh, New York because he was excited by the emergent theater activities that was going on in China. And he's, he was invited by fellow theater artists uh, uh, either in China or uh, they received similar theater education in the West to go back to China and really start a new modern drama theater tradition. So um, in uh, both Tian Han and Hong Shen work closely together, uh, one as a script writer, the other as a director, but Hong Shen himself is also an actor. Uh, mm -hmm. So both of them are very, uh, uh, very complex and has interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary training training as theater uh, practitioners. And both of them, uh, interestingly, because they uh, they were very famous, they were leaders 
of theater and art and film. By the way, Hong Xin uh, is even more involved in theater than Tianhan uh, because he also directed early films in addition to writing scripts as Tianhan and Ouyang Yuqian did for the film industry. So three founding fathers, you can also say, are also three key players in study uh, Chinese film industry. But uh, the other point I want to mention is both Hongshen and Tianhan, uh, because of the leadership before 1949 in the Republican period, they were promoted as key leaders in the PRC period. So the carry forward from the Republican period to the PRC, the key dramatic practices and uh, management uh, and the tradition into the socialist period and their influence can still be seen in post-socialist period because their dramatic pieces, television dramas and film are portraying their life as a theater artist and a successfully, of course, successful ones, of course. So you're, are you saying that, that in a way there's more continuity between the pre-revolutionary Chinese theater and the post-revolutionary Chinese theater than people typically think? Exactly, I'm so glad Andy, you got that key point. Uh, <laughs> Just to say, uh, all my books from uh, Occidentalism to this one, uh, my the argument at the back of my mind is to say, Chinese theater is regarded, especially in the modern period, especially the Maoist period after 1949, we're regarded as not art, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just political maneuvering, propaganda uh, pieces not worth studying. I'm saying you cannot really separate the dramatic tradition of the artist's career from the uh, uh, Republican period um, uh, to the uh, PRC and post-Mao period. You can see a kind of uh, continuity going through from the 1920s all the way to 1990s because the dramatic tradition they created is a kind of glue uh, that continues the dramatic art from the early 20s um, to 1949, which is the Republican period, and from 1949 to 1976, which is the high Mao socialist period and period of a cultural revolution, and all the way to the Deng Xiaoping period of economic reform, which is started in 1980s. So I'm trying to uh, talk about Chinese theater, not something uniquely politically oppressive, mm -hmm. not theater artists are mere victims, they're also creators and imaginaries of the socialist tradition without their early contributions of founding fathers of modern Chinese theater, we cannot really understand the Maoist theater and the post-Mao theater and the cultural traditions interwoven into them. Do you think part of this misconception that that thinks that, you know, Chinese theater artists are, are just sort of uh, performing at the will of political masters do you feel like that partially what people are doing is kind of projecting what they think is true about contemporary china onto china of 50 60 70 years ago i think you're quite right because people have little knowledge or fewer knowledge um or less knowledge of the republican period drama from the 1920s to 1949 right mm -hmm. because um spoken drama was still being created by these founding fathers and was not became a popular genre until the Second World War period, uh, when the Japanese invasion of China in the 1930s really motivated the dramatic production and popularized modern spoken drama as a, 
as important weapon uh, in the battle against U uh, Japanese uh, imperialism. So that mm. piece is not as well known as the PRC cultural history, which is Maoist suppression of the intellectuals. We all heard the story that Tianhan didn't survive the Cultural Revolution. Therefore, um, the great artists who produced in the in the Republican period as successful dramatists could not survive the really rigid political oppression of the Maoist period, and especially during the Cultural Revolutionary period. To some extent, this argument is not wrong. But what I'm trying to say is to emphasize the continuity rather than the disruption between different periods and to connect the earlier career with the later career and to see one cannot be understood without the other. There's something uh, passionate in Tianhan Hongshen and to some extent in Ouyang Yutian about uh, social equality, mm -hmm. uh, writing and performing for the ordinary people, not for the aristocratic and uh, fighting against um, foreign in invasion. Uh, that includes the Japanese, the American, and the European uh, countries that invaded China uh, in 1900. The all kinds of thematic concerns and artistic tradition that was started before 1949, and they get developed and evolved in the later periods. I, I happen to have been reading some Mayakovsky this week, and it strikes me listening to you talk about Tianhan that you can almost think of him as like a Chinese parallel to Mayakovsky, that he's not somebody who is a victim of communism in a simplistic way, but he was somebody who really would have thought of himself as as a writer for the people and, and as a, a dedicated, you know, sort of worker of the pen uh, for the cause of socialism. Do you think that's that's fair? Very fair. I think what you described is can easily be applied to Tianhan, that in his early works in the 1920s, for example, uh, he wrote a lot of plays about poor workers. Mm -hmm. And he also uh, uh, borrowed um, a lot of uh, socialist, uh, global socialist thought, uh, Japanese socialism, and American individualism and transcendentalism, all these Western goodies. And he was influenced. <laughs> He was reading widely about this. So theater for the people was a Russian trend, right? It was mm -hmm. also a global socialist trend. It was also Japanese socialist theaters uh, believe, right? Uh, so this idea of theater has a function uh, to meet the uh, needs of the people, to describe the inequality of society, uh, to describe what was known in socialist ideology as a class struggle, which was a global socialist trend in the 1920s and 30s, right? So this has less to do uh, with Chinese Marxism, which Tianhan also switched to later, but that was after he turned left in the 1930s, right? So in the sense, Tianhan was not alone. He was among all these uh, uh, writers in the early 20s and, um, and who were sympathetic to the people who were spokesman uh, of the people, and that make his transition into socialist artists an easy one if mm -hmm. he did not create it and imagine and manifest that kind of thing himself together with his peer artists. Very and in good. a way that, that makes his fate in the 1960s even more tragic in a, in a sense. Exactly. Well, people, I would agree with this point that he... Uh, was persecuted to death during the Cultural Revolution, and he was uh, 
a victim of the Cultural Revolution, but people tend to forget how he was elected or appointed in 1949 as the president of American, um, sorry, as the Chinese Dramatist Association. He was the key leader by 1949 in early PRC period as a leader of theater and art, right? Mm -hmm. So he established a lot of socialist practice uh, of, 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 of theater. Uh, both in uh, in film, in television, and in theater, and popular art, and traditional Peking opera. Uh, so yes, he he was a victim of Cultural Revolution, but I would also say maybe emphasize even more: he's a victim of his own success. Mm. He was a successful people's artist before 1949. He was a key leader uh, in the Maoist period. And precisely because he was responsible for all this artistic uh, achievement from the Republican China all the way to the Cultural Revolution, when all these bad cultures were criticized during the Cultural Revolution as bourgeois, uh, feudalist art, Tianhan, of course, was the uh, quintessential leader to be uh, criticized. But why? because he was also so successful in creating the Republican theater, the PRC theater. So he's also a victim of his success as a drama artist. Well, Dr. Xiaomei Chen, thank you so much for talking with us about your wonderful book, Performing the Socialist State. I hope you've given our, uh, or I, I, I'll say, I believe you've given our, uh, our listeners uh, enough of a taste for these fascinating characters that they'll want to run out and read the book for themselves. So thank you so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts once again to talk about uh, 20th century Chinese drama. Thank you very much, Andy, for giving me this opportunity to talk about my new book. I really appreciate it.